1: on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. It may make you less anxious. Are you anxious about anything? Stay tuned. So what are you anxious about? I experience anxiety probably quite a bit. And I think a lot of people do. In fact, I mean, the statistics say that about a third of all Americans will have some sort of anxiety experience over the course of their lifetime. But I recently saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that caught my eye, and I'm really hoping this can help you with your anxiety. It's entitled, In Praise of Anxiety. Rather than suppress this misunderstood emotion, we need to understand its essential evolutionary role in motivating us to action. And the author, Tracy dennis Tawari, is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and director of the Emotion Regulation Lab at Hunter College. She joins us now. How do you like to be called? Dr. Tracy, Dr. Tawari? Ten- what should I call you? Thank you for asking. Tracy is just fine. It's nice to put
0: the doctor in there in the beginning, and then we can uh, we can just let it go.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's not forget there is a doctor attached to Tracy, and that's very important as she speaks to this topic, which really reached out to me. And by the way, I want people to know that that little animal behind her is Nochi, her pup, <laughs> and uh, he's adorable, and he's just sitting so still. I would imagine he brings down... He? She? He. He, he brings, brings down, down my anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. He, you
0: know, he is... Of course, having written a book about anxiety in an article in the Wall Street Journal, of course, he is one of the most anxious dogs I know. And that's a, whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other story.
1: Well, as we try to put a positive spin on anxiety, I don't know if you can communicate that to a canine, but, you know, you can always try. It, I found your article so interesting because as someone who has dealt with anxiety for pretty much most of my life, to look at it in, through a different lens was really helpful to me. What spurred this investigation of the emotion of anxiety for you?
0: You know, I've been a psychologist for over twenty years now, and I actually am, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And I defended my dissertation. You know, when I officially became a psychologist on September 11th, 2001.
1: No kidding.
0: Yes, and so when I kind you know kind of came into the world as a professional mental health was at the top of mind for all of us and i really believed that this is the moment for us to transform how we think about and treat and destigmatize mental health and so i put my head down for 20 years and just did the research now i'm a clinical psychologist but i've never really practiced i've mainly done clinical research so i did the work i've developed you know interventions for anxiety gamified digital therapeutics. I even co-founded a digital therapeutics company called Wise Therapeutics to lower the barriers to accessing these, these engaging treatments. But I looked up about five years ago and I saw, okay, we have these great treatments. We have deep scientific understanding. We have medications for people who need them. Anxiety disorders are on the rise. And the statistic you mentioned before, that a third of us will be anxious in our lifetime, That actually is about clinical anxiety. A third of us will be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in our lifetime. And the rest of us are just having, well, in many cases, struggling with anxiety. So anxiety is the human condition. We understand a lot about it. Why aren't these solutions working? And I came to an inescapable conclusion that we mental health professionals had made some terrible mistakes along the way, that we have conveyed some really profoundly damaging fallacies inadvertently, but nonetheless, uh, some really destructive viewpoints about anxiety that now we need to correct. And that's really why I wrote the book to, to, to correct some of these views that we've developed about anxiety that I believe are causing more harm than good and getting in the way of actually allowing those good treatments that are out there, that information we have to help us.
1: It's interesting that information could actually be an answer to this. I have friends with anxiety. It can be a debilitating thing. Uh, anyone that experiences anxiety, you know, it's, first of all, help us differentiate between, say, anxiety and fear or dread or, you know, how they intersect. What, what, how would you define anxiety from a clinical standpoint?
0: It's a great, it's a crucial question. And I love definitions. I'm a scientist. So thank you for asking that question. (laughs) And I'll also go on to maybe also distinguish anxiety from an anxiety disorder, because I think these, these, this understanding, these definitional understandings are actually at the crux of of this issue. So fear is the emotion we have when we face clear and present danger, certain in the moment someone is holding a knife to your, your throat. That is fear. And because it's information, I'm in danger in the moment it also primes us to act. And that's the old fight, flight response, freeze, fight, flight, three Fs that we're all so familiar with. So we see the adaptive value of that. But anxiety has nothing to do with the present moment. Anxiety is all about the future. So as a definition, anxiety is apprehension about the uncertain future. That means that we're nervous about something coming around the bend. It hasn't happened yet. So something bad could happen but that also means that something good could happen instead. And anxiety makes us into these mental time travelers where we're holding those two possibilities in mind and we are prepared to actually, and this is where the preparation set of how emotions help us prepare to act. We're prepared to avert disaster and make our dreams come true. But the way we talk about anxiety is we think of it only as an, an alarm bell, you know, a, an alarm that tells us time to panic, but really what anxiety is is it's a it's a signal that we should start paying attention that there's a future about which we care deeply and that we still have reason to hope that a that a positive outcome is possible
1: that is fascinating as you were describing that i was picturing myself when i'm waiting for my son to get home and he's driving and there's it right and it's it, nothing's happened yet he's still at school wherever but he's going to get in the car he's 16 please, God, get him home safely to me. And of course, I'm anxious that, oh, what if there's a car accident? What if it's not his fault? What if he, you know, and that yet there's the hopeful outcome, which would be he walks in the door and everything's fine. Is that a, is that a fair example? That's a perfect example because it also teaches
0: us something fundamental about anxiety that you're, you're only anxious when you're still holding on to that hope. So huh. if you only feared that he was in an accident, you would despair, you would panic, you would, you would. And and of course, anxiety as an emotion is on the spectrum. It's not panic all the time. It's that it's that nervousness. It's the butterflies in our stomach. So this is that one of the if, if there's only one message that people take away from from this book, it's that when we think about ourselves struggling with anxiety, we should remember that we're also it means that we're struggling with hope and it that anxiety contains it it contains it, it contains and it's hope. actually how we've evolved to keep hoping be in it to win it persist in the face of obstacles because we know that that positive outcome is still possible
1: this is amazing so anxiety has been with us forever right it is a it is a human emotion just like joy happiness sadness fear correct correct and you posit in your book that anxiety has actually led to some pretty creative outcomes How do you, what's an example of that? A
0: simple example of that is once we remember that anxiety is the belief that there are future possibilities, well, that's, and that it's a, it's that feeling we get when there's a discrepancy between where we are now and where we want to be. You want to, you're here waiting for your son to come home and you want him to be home safe. Anxiety is that discrepancy in between. Um, Or you have that big job interview tomorrow and you're here waiting for it and you want to crush it. Right. So you're in that space in between. That's where creativity lives. So when we're creative, it's about bringing something into existence that's never quite existed before in the same way. Now, that could be a ham sandwich, which is funny (laughs) of me to say because I'm a vegetarian. But anyway, that could be a ham sandwich. (laughs) That could be a great work of art. It could be a problem, a thorny problem that you've been struggling with. So there's beautiful research by DeDruy and colleagues from 2008. And they showed that when you induce someone to feel mildly anxious. So, you know, I could tell you, okay, your son's on his way home and he's driving. And, you know, just thinking about that would make you, you know, it would make you anxious. Do something like that to make someone feel anxious and then give them a difficult problem solving task. Induce other emotions, compare it to sadness, to happiness, to other emotions. What do you find when you're anxious? You persist long in a difficult problem-solving task where you have to come up with new ideas to solve a difficult problem. Uh, You come up with better quality ideas and more of them. Anxiety is an activating emotion. It prepares us to move into the future, to navigate uncertainty, and to make something good happen.
1: It is an amazing thought and revelation to me, someone who always looked at anxiety through such a negative lens. You know, it just, it's, I hate being anxious. Everyone hates being anxious, but you also say, as you, as you mentioned early here, that there have been mistakes made in medical professional or psychological professionals approach to anxiety in a nutshell. What are those mistakes? How were those made? What, how long have we been making those mistakes? We've been making them since the birth of psychology,
0: which I guess you could track that about, uh, you know, 150 years ago. What started to happen is psychology desired to become a medical science, to medicalize anxiety so that we could understand and treat it like like any disease, we created a disease story of anxiety. And it became fundamental, you know, in the early early days of psychology with Freudian theory. And then, you know, decades later with cognitive behavioral kinds of approaches, we knew that anxiety was at the crux of a lot of mental health challenges. So what we did is we said, well, all experiences of anxiety, then we have to treat like a disease. We have to treat it like cancer. What does that mean? You prevent it and you eradicate it because that's what the disease story tells us. It's like COVID. Don't get it. And if you get COVID, you got to treat it and you have to take vaccines. But when we do that with our emotions, some very unhelpful things start to happen. First, we start to avoid and suppress those feelings. And we take them as automatically a sign of danger. What that does with anxiety is anytime you suppress anxiety, what happens? It's like the white bear effect. Don't think of a white bear. (laughs) Immediately, immediately our minds. And that's what happens with emotions. The more we suppress them, the more they come back stronger than ever. And it's an opportunity cost because we don't engage with difficult emotions and learn to cope with them. So that's the first thing to do. The second thing when we have a disease, this is the story we psychologists and psychiatrists have told with the disease story of anxiety, uh, we believe that it's a malfunction. So that when we feel anxiety, it feels bad. No one likes to feel anxious. It must mean that there's something wrong. So it's a malfunction and I better fix it. So that means it's a failure, right? That of mental health, of happiness. That means that we have to really do something about it immediately. And what it stops us from doing is really leaning into those things that we were talking about in the beginning that, well, wait a second, anxiety is information. It's powerful information about the future you hope about, about what you care about in the world. As soon as we treat it like a disease, we not only uh, exaggerate and, and amplify it and lose opportunities to cope, but then we lose opportunities to see its advantages. That maybe, oh, someone said to me the other day, it was so beautiful. She, she said, I've always thought of myself as a person who struggles with anxiety, but that never fit. And I realized that's because I'm actually a person who struggles with hope. <laughs> and when you just making that slight mindset shift helps us do many more helpful things when it comes to actually working with our difficult emotions like anxiety and many fewer of the unhelpful things like suppression, avoidance
1: and um, and denial. And this is something I want to point out. You just said, make that shift in the way you see it. And that is possible. And people don't give themselves enough credit that they have the power to make that shift. It takes practice like anything else, but you can make that shift. We're going to get to that and also talk about how you can help your kids and your teenagers through anxiety. This is so important to me as I watch people raise kids around me who just try to protect them from anxiety and make it all go away, which I think is so, so, so unhealthy. More with Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tiwari in just a moment. You know, folks, since November of last year, the stock market has plummeted, but gold has been on the rise. Gas prices are insane. I couldn't believe it when I filled my tank the other day. It was close to a hundred bucks. Yikes. The stock market is extremely volatile. Inflation is even worse than it was a year ago, and now we've got this war between Russia and Ukraine, and hopefully that doesn't spread any further than that. The markets do not like instability, but the good news is you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against the weakening dollar. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company that I trust when investing in silver and gold. You need an investment that will protect your wealth and retirement. Call Legacy Precious Metals today. Be proactive while there is still time, because remember 2008? Those who invested in gold saw huge gains while others simply lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all of your options for investing in gold and silver. And you can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866 1903 That's 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. My guest is Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari, a professor of psychology and neuroscience and director of the Emotion Regulation Lab at Hunter College. She's clinical psychologist as well. And we're talking about anxiety. And as I read your piece in the Wall Street Journal in praise of anxiety, I mean, the the headline just grabbed me because I thought, wait, we're going to praise anxiety. There's something (laughs) good about anxiety. I'm in, tell me all about it. But I got to the part in the, in the latter part of the article about how parents sort of want to remove anxiety from their children's lives and they, they want to make everything happy and and give them a world that is not realistic, in my view. Why is that the wrong approach for a parent?
0: I'm a parent, too, and I have all of those same instincts. This comes from, of course, the best place of love and care, and it's so hard to see our kids suffer. I mean, every yes. parent struggles with this. Yes. Um, so this. So this article in the Wall Street Journal... Um, was based on a book I wrote. And and the title of the book will tell you even more about why I think this is so important. It's called Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. And I I love that play
1: on words, by the way, future tense. Oh,
0: thank you for catching that. Get it? Get it?
1: Okay, so go ahead. And
0: And I have a whole chapter devoted to parenting. I have a chapter also where I talk a lot about raising our kids and technology. And so, and and I'm really at my heart as a parent, as a, as also a developmental psychologist, I care, you know, kids are really where, where we always are going when we think anxiety. The title of the chapter on kids is called Kids Are Not Fragile. And I entitled it that because when we treat our kids as fragile, we're doing them a huge disservice because what does it mean to be fragile? A China teacup is fragile. So when we, when we drop the teacup, it breaks into a million pieces. You can never put that teacup back together again the same way. But that is not how most ways of being human work. We are actually anti-fragile. And that's a term that Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined in his book about a decade ago called anti-fragility, things that gain from disorder. And why it's important to think of kids this way is that think of our immune system. That is an anti-fragile system because you can't learn, your, your body will not learn to mount an immune response unless germs and bacteria and viruses are thrown at it. That is literally the only, so it actually requires challenge to be, to be optimally working. Otherwise we'd be the boy in the bubble. Think of muscles. If you don't stress and strain and work and exercise those muscles, they will atrophy. They require that stress and strain. Our emotional lives are the same. So when we see our kids struggling with anxiety, our impulse is to you know, kind of you know, remove all those, those causes of those feelings and soothe them immediately. What, they, what we need to realize is that those emotions and their ability to learn to build emotional skills is an anti-fragile process. We need to let them struggle. We need to scaffold them and support them. But the only way out is through. And the only way to learn how to feel good is to really deeply learn how to feel badly and to cope with those bad feelings in ways that allow you to still function in the world. And so that's at the heart of, of really what I believe is the, is, the, is the most helpful approach that parents can take with helping their kids with anxiety. Now, when you have an anxiety disorder, I, earlier on I seeded the, oh, anxiety isn't the same as anxiety disorder. Let me make this right. distinction now because we all worry that our kids are going down that path towards an anxiety disorder. You can have frequent and intense anxiety And still, you would not be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder unless the ways that you cope with that anxiety are getting in the way of you living a full life. So when it comes to us, for example, say I have social anxiety and I'm very nervous when someone interviews me or I talk to people. And now I might have that anxiety every day and I can work through it. It's only when I stop agreeing to be on interesting podcasts. I don't go to work. I stop. I stop. um, You know, if I'm a kid, I don't go to school anymore. Or I want to I want to sleep with my parents every night. It's Those ways of coping are getting in the way of living life. And that's when an anxiety disorder might be present. So when we are helping our kids avoid anxiety, we're actually starting this vicious cycle of of the kinds of coping that gets in the way, the kinds of coping that's about avoidance and not learning to actually work through it. So, So as a parent, the best thing we can do is to teach our kids how to cope with that anxiety in the moment and to build skills to do so.
1: This is this resonates with me, I can't tell you, uh, because I, I felt that that was the best way to raise my kids. I'm a practicing Stoic, and by practicing, I mean I'm really practicing. I'm, I'm, I can't, don't claim to be a Stoic, but one of the key pillars of Stoicism is to know that the obstacle is the way, that you've got something in front of you, it may make you anxious, but the only way to deal with it properly or effectively is to work your way around it or through it or over it or however it, you know, and, and by doing that, you find something about yourself. And that's what I think kids are being protected from. I don't know if it's largely, but it's happening. And we're raising in my estimation, kids who are being taught that they're fragile. They're not, but they're being taught that they are. And they're not being given the the skills to feel strong and powerful and know and confident and know that they can overcome these things. And so, yes, even with my kids being small, I showed them a video on stranger danger, which was approved for kids. Mm -hmm. But I wanted them to know, even at that age, that they had some agency in their situations, Mm -hmm. that they were strong enough to say, hey, this isn't my mom, this isn't my dad, you know, and and call uh, call to action other people around them if they were ever approached by a stranger. That's just one example, and I, I'm just one person, but I find this to be so empowering. Do you feel like this is something that is you know that people are wanting to hear that they that they or are it just seems to me we've in society in general we've gotten so self protective and so I need my safe space and I'm just wondering are, are we t- are we too late? I hope not.
0: Yeah, no, I am a I'm a <laughs> I use my anxiety to hope for the future. So I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I don't think it's honestly, I don't think it's too late. Uh, this is where again, the sole purpose of my book is to shift the paradigm on how we talk about anxiety because if you really think that anxiety is dangerous and a, and a disease most of the time, of course you're going to protect your kids from it. But if instead we sh- we find a different metaphor and we think of mental health as actually being more like health or physical fitness. Like what if we, because we've come to, and you say this out loud and you think no one actually thinks that, but this is what we've conveyed mental health. We think equals the absence of emotional discomfort (laughs) and the opposite is true. Mental health equals the ability to work with emotional discomfort and come out the other side. So what if the, what if the metaphor is physical fitness and that's anxiety is like physical fitness? How does that change what we as parents do? Well, one thing, we know that it's not binary. It's not all or none. We know that it's a process of something you work towards, that you have to be challenged to achieve that physical fitness, um, that we look for early warning signs. So we don't just let our kid go out and, you know, they're five years old and they play squash every day and they, they very soon <laughs> injure themselves. We actually look for what so, so to say that a kid isn't fragile and needs, to, and, and needs to build skills or challenge themselves doesn't mean that we throw them to the wolves or that we don't care for them. It just means that we give them the opportunity to build those skills and we know that they can do it. And we have faith that they can do it and they learn that same faith that they can do it. Now there's a beautiful study that came out of the Yale Child Study Center and it's actually driven, it's a series of studies now, and it's driven a new treatment approach for children who are at the point of suffering from diagnosed clinical anxiety disorders. And it's called SPACE. Ellie Leibowitz and colleagues developed this. Uh, it stands for supportive parenting for, of anxious children. And they, you know, typically you have a clinically anxious child and they receive gold standard cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a wonderful therapeutic approach. You learn to challenge your thoughts and behavioral habits. You learn to stop avoiding anxiety-provoking situations and cope, cope with them. So, so in space now, you don't actually give the kids any therapy. All you do is you teach the parents to stop over accommodating their children's fears. So if your child's socially anxious and they wanna sleep every night with you and they don't go to school anymore, you slowly and gradually over six to eight weeks, help them sleep in their own room, help them get to school. Again, you don't have to throw them in the deep end to do that, but you slowly help them build those skills. And so they'll do clinical trials of this and they compare it to treatment, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for kids. So compare just parents learning to stop over accommodating to clinically anxious children receiving therapy themselves. What do you find? They're equally effective. Kids in both groups show equal decreases in clinical anxiety symptoms, even if the children themselves never receive direct therapy. Now that's not to parent blame. I don't think, I I'm in, I don't wanna be in the business of parent blaming because honestly, part of what's happened I think as parents is we've ceased to trust ourselves because it's this, this sort of standard, this toxic standard of perfect parenting you have to check off all of the 20, every box of the twenty boxes, or you're a bad parent. And I don't believe in that at all. I think that really what we need to do is have not be so anxious about our children's anxiety, that we lose our parental instincts, that we lose faith in ourselves to help guide our kids through these difficult moments.
1: It's so important, and the thing I like about that space approach. Is that in a way the the parents are getting therapy too? I, am I wrong? Because it seems like they're learning ways to teach their kids to cope, which may strengthen them as parents. It's a win-win, and it's a mindset <laughs> shift. It's a it's a
0: it's skills again. Knowing that these are skills that you can build, but it's also this mindset shift. There was another great study, and from 2013, Jameson and colleagues clinically anxious people came in social anxiety actually to do one of the hardest things. That, that, soci- that socially anxious people do, they had to give an impromptu speech in front of a panel of judges who were trained to be very judgmental, like crossing their <laughs> arms. and right? This is kryptonite for people with social anxiety, for all of us, but for people especially, with social anxiety disorder. Half of those people learned that when they felt anxious, when their hearts were racing, they, they, they were sweating, that that wasn't actually a sign to panic, that it was their body preparing to perform that it was their blood pumping blood you know they're sorry their heart pumping blood to their brain with more oxygen so they could focus they learned this new story of anxiety they and they were shown research and they were they were given all that information and then the other half of the people didn't learn that and what do you know when they actually had to give the speech the people who learned that their anxiety could be an ally they performed better their heart rates were lower and their blood pressure was lower they looked like people who were actually just performing at their peak so these mindset shifts are real and they're powerful
1: and we can all do it. I, what you just said, we can all do it. That is so important that people believe that. Uh, and I I don't know how you convince people of that, except repeating it to them that they can <laughs> do it. They can do it. They can. Yes, you can. I mean, is there is there a a pitch you can give to anyone who's listening right now that yeah, you can make a mind shift. It, it, it is possible whether you know it right now or not. You know, the only thing I want to
0: say is that if you struggle with debilitating anxiety, this pitch, as you say, this idea that anxiety is good for you is not to undermine that suffering. It is real. And when you have an anxiety disorder, it is a real disorder. It's not just just change your mind. You're going to be better. Right. It is you have to struggle your way through every struggle your way through every day, and it is hard work. And these are not people who are lazy or just not thinking about it right, right. At the same time, I will say, when we consider that anxiety isn't always a disease or enemy, and are just curious, the pitch is just be curious about it for a minute, and think. Well, you know, anxiety sometimes is not spiraling out of control. Sometimes those butterflies in my stomach are giving me important information. Let me be open and curious about it for a second. Uh, sometimes it's my gut instinct. Anxiety is actually my gut instinct telling me that this is something that's not good for me or that maybe this is, a, I should pay attention. It's this, it's like a smoke alarm. And you know, it's good. Like you, when you hear the smoke alarm, you don't put earplugs in and go to a different <laughs> part of the house. You just are curious. You're like, you know, maybe the batteries are off or maybe I should see if there is a fire. But So my pitch would be, be curious about it for a moment, consider it could be helpful. And when you are, even when you're really struggling through debilitating anxiety and anxiety disorders, it will help you do more of the helpful things that you're already learning in therapy to cope, to find more resources in your life, to connect to others. You know, anxiety actually primes you. It it, it increases our levels of oxytocin, the social bonding hormone. So it primes us to connect to others. Anxiety increases dopamine in our brain, the pleasure hormone, which actually isn't just sex drugs and rock and roll. It also helps us strive to meet our goals. So anxiety isn't just those three F's of of freeze, fight and flight. It's also priming us to do things that help us and just be curious about anxiety enough to see if it can offer you some of those advantages and then do even better than all the hard work you're doing. Even do better at all that hard work and, and help you in that struggle because it is a struggle.
1: I hope everyone who's listening reads your book. I really do. But before I let you go, I have to ask you about the, the, the one big tool of driving anxiety these days. And that is social media. And, you know, I, I guess my approach was I taught kids do not define yourself by the number mm-hmm. of likes or follows. That is not what defines you. And I preach that to them constantly. And they say, I know, I know. I, you know, I hope they know, but where does social media fit into this whole picture of inducing anxiety, et cetera?
0: We have to think of social media today. There's no ignoring it. And what tends to grab high li- uh, uh, headlines, so to speak, what tends to grab headlines are the extremes of the story, right? That it's either all bad and evil yeah. and it's destroyed a generation and it's making all of us anxious or nah, It's just like you know, how we used to panic about the boob tube. And like, it's just it's not bad at all. Nuance is hard, but I believe that we parents and we as individuals who are using digital technology and social media have to find that nuanced place. And for me, that nuanced place is there's no doubt that, that social media are not designed for human well-being. They're designed for corporate profit. So when we are working with our kids about how to navigate their digital lives, we have to teach them to be good citizens. What does that mean? It means we can't expect... Uh, you know. Uh, they're not, screens aren't going away. So you, they have to learn some key skills with, as you say, are you going to use these tools? Are you going to be used by them or are you going to use them? Are you just, you know, uh, content yeah. <laughs> for these social media companies, which means you're defining yourself by the likes and the shares and the followers and, or, um, and are you seeing, can you see also how you're being gamified? And rewarded to care about certain things that you may not want to care about. Let's teach our kids to have that wisdom. And then once we, and that's an ongoing lifelong process, un- yes, unfortunately, it but it yeah. is. And then the second part is that, okay, so how do you use technology to def- to further your goals, to enrich your life? Well, probably it's not good for deep social connection. Let's just wake <laughs> up to the reality of that. From a social capital perspective, it's good for bridging, but not bonding. You know, bridging meaning yeah, meet new people, discover new things. Don't think that you're really enriching human connections are going to come from there, right? Right. Know that, yeah, you know, once in a while, you know, I have a 13-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. You know, once in a while, my son's going to be on video games. He enjoys playing them with his friends. And it's, talk to your kids about how that's an, that's great, but it's also an opportunity cost. It's keeping them from doing other things, which for my right. son is like running on the track team or playing piano. You know, it's an opportunity cost. Let's find that balance. But these are discussions, So anxiety is amplified by technology when we define ourselves by it, when we escape into it to avoid our uncomfortable feelings all the time, when we're not doing other things that take care of ourselves. When we're, you know, we feel bad when we're on Twitter for five hours. Everyone would, right?
1: Yes. Take that
0: information, do something that removes you from that and builds builds your well-being. So those are the kinds of conversations I think we have to have around anxiety and, and social media and digital tech.
1: I feel better. I hope (laughs) I do. I, I can't, I can't recommend this enough. I will retweet the article a million times because I think it's so important to read, but the book is future tense. Why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. It's, uh, again, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari. I just, what a pleasure it's been to talk to you. I hope we can do it again on another topic because you put this into words that we can all appreciate and understand. And I think feel like we can use and apply to our own lives. And that is so important. Um, You're giving us a little bit of a roadmap and it's tremendous. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Michelle. I'll
1: be talking. I'll talk with you anytime.
0: It's been such a pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I have enjoyed it as well. Folks, again, the book future tense, like tense, you know, uh, why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. There is hope in anxiety. That's an amazing thing to understand and accept. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Thanks for being with us.